Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, excited today to talk about ethics, talk about ethics in higher education, promoting equity and inclusion through case-based inquiry. It's a new book from Harvard Education Press, edited by Rebecca Taylor and Ashley Floyd Kuntz. I have Rebecca and Ashley here with me today. I want to begin by welcoming you both to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much for having us. Awesome. Awesome. Ethics is something we've talked about a bunch as a trend that has been on the rise in, in recent years. Folks are thinking more about ethical considerations. We're going to dig into all that shortly. But just to begin, we always like to get our guests' origin stories. We'll start with you, Ashley. Can you let us know what got you to this point in your professional life? Sure. I'm a first-generation college student from a rural part of Alabama. So for me, college was very transformational. I loved it. You know, I was always the kid that cried at the end of the school year. I did not want school to end, and I would count down the days until school began again in fall. So when a mentor of mine in college asked, where do you think you want to work? What sort of environment would you want to be in? I was like, oh, that's a very easy answer. I just want to stay in college forever. <laughs> and so um, why would you ever leave school if you didn't have to? I built my career on the administrative side first. I worked in college admissions and financial aid and then in honors education. And along the way, while I was working full-time and rising in the administrative rank, I also got my master's in higher ed and my PhD. So I really didn't think I'd ever be a faculty member of higher education, but here I am. Life takes unexpected twists and I'm really enjoying it. I'm a clinical assistant professor of higher education at Florida International University in Miami, Florida, and I really enjoy working for such a large Hispanic serving institution. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, that's my yeah. origin story. Cool. And we'll circle back to hear about the origin story of the book, which I think is uh, where we're going to pick up next. But before we do that, Rebecca, can you quickly catch us up on your background and what got you to this point professionally? Sure. In some ways, similar to Ashley, my current work and interest in issues of ethics and justice in education is really rooted in my experiences growing up in rural Appalachia. I think growing up, I just saw wide disparities in access to education. I was really fortunate with the support of a wonderful elementary school teacher. I ended up getting a scholarship to attend a academically rigorous private school in a nearby city to where my family was living. But the rest of my family and neighbors didn't have that same opportunity. And I saw how for some school could be this pathway into college and career opportunities. And for others, it was a pathway into poverty in prison. And there were these wide disparities that were really salient to me as a child growing up. And then moving into my academic career, I had this interest in thinking about how we address social inequities and the ethical dimensions of those. Mm. I wasn't specifically focused on education early on. My undergraduate degree was in philosophy and mathematics at Washington University in St. Louis. And I really dove into the philosophy part of that, looking at social and political philosophy. And then I went on, my first graduate degree was in peace, conflict, and development studies, thinking about uh, ethical issues that come up in international development contexts. Mm -hmm. And in that experience in graduate school, I became really interested in the role of education in addressing so many of the big social issues that I was concerned about. And so I went back and did my PhD in 
philosophy of education at Stanford University. And that kind of led me into my current role, which is as an assistant professor of philosophy of education at the University of Illinois in um, Champaign-Urbana. So that's how I got to where I am. And in my current work, I focus on the ethical issues that arise within college contexts in particular. And I guess that's what brought the two of you together was a shared interest in ethical considerations for higher ed. Really, The title of the book is Ethics in Higher Education. I'd love to get each of your perspectives, maybe beginning with you, Rebecca, and then picking up with you, Ashley, on ethics education just in general. What is it? Give us a little bit of background and then your perspective on on why it's important. When I hear ethics education, a, a few different things come to mind. One is the teaching of ethics that happens in higher education, which can be my kind of more focused on like personal ethical decisions, but then also ethics more broadly within higher education or educational institutions and the types of issues of justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a whole range of ethical issues that arise not just for individuals in their personal lives, but for institutions, for practitioners, for policymakers, mm -hmm. as they think about what function are these institutions playing in society and how are they serving their members in society more broadly. Mm -hmm. And so for us, this project is really focused on how some of these bigger structural issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion that show up in both big and small ways every day in colleges and universities those issues can't be resolved by any individual alone. They require structural solutions. And so we need more attention to policy and to institutional practices that can help advance more ethical ways of interacting, ethical policies and practices in higher ed. But at the same time, individuals working and studying in these institutions have to decide every day how they're going to respond when these issues arise in their day-to-day -day, mm -hmm. um, work um, and experience as students. And so in the case, we try to broach both of those levels of the individual decision-making, ethical decision-making for individuals in different types of roles within higher education institutions, mm -hmm. and also attending to how those play out at the broader institutional level. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. And then Ashley, the, the structure of the book is very much case-based. And then even the nature of the cases, I found quite interesting. And then even the structure of the chapters was also really thought-provoking for me as someone who's not in not not deeply ensconced in higher ed. I, I still got a lot of value out of the the structure and the approach that you took to pulling the the book together. Can you walk us through the case-based approach, maybe building on what Rebecca was talking about? Yes. As I was coming up in my academic career, I got really interested in college student moral development, which Within higher education programs, interestingly, most of the attention on ethics education really, it, it's bifurcated between college student world development and professional ethics education. So ethics education for doctors in training, dentists in training, that sort of thing. And so my dissertation actually was on moral development, and I was working with a mentor through the Center for the Study of Ethical Development at the University of Alabama. And cases have a very particular use in that context. They're used in quantitative measures. It's very educational psychology based. Mm -hmm. One thing that's interesting to know about Rebecca and me is that we actually met in what we called philosophy camp. We were both seeking some additional engagement with these ideas when we were in graduate school and independently applied for a Spencer Foundation program 
which was called the Philosophy of Education Initiative. Mm-hmm. And there we have the opportunity to come together with a group of maybe 15 other graduate students and have very intense discussions. You know, we had a lot of opportunity to listen to one another's perspectives and not always agree and keep pushing at ideas. And it was really, I know it was really formative for me. I think it was certainly formative in Rebecca and I working together. That is how we met. We credit the Spencer Foundation with introducing us and not only supporting this work, but supporting our development in this area. And my, my sense for what could be done with a case in response to the philosophy training. And Rebecca actually is the one who has developed a lot of expertise in the case-based inquiry. So I'll let her say more about that. But for me, the way we approached this book was unique in that we were looking for evidence that someone had achieved a certain metric or had developed in a certain way. We were looking to prompt conversation and to elicit focus on ethical issues. I'll let Rebecca say more there. And we'll get back to the, the, the cases themselves, because one of the topics that comes up a lot in conversations about good education is the relevance and why should I care? And I would say, as we run through the cases, they are very uh, top of mind in terms of the cultural conversations that we're having nowadays. They're very zeitgeisty, as I like to say. But uh, but before we get into them, that's a little tease for our listeners. We're going to get into some really intriguing and relevant topics shortly. But uh, but I think the format of the methodology, I think, is, is really useful to 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 spend a little more time on. Rebecca, can you catch us up on that? Sure. So I think as Ashley was saying. Initially, the case studies as a method have been used as a pedagogical tool across professional ethics fields. And in the context of education in particular, that has, they've been used over the years in ethics courses for teacher candidates, kind of ethics of teaching courses as one primary area. And then the, some use, I think, in the higher ed context, which Ashley can speak more to, but maybe less so than they have had this kind of prominent role in the preparation of teacher candidates. And so for this book, there was two recent volumes from our colleagues, Mira Levinson and Jake Fay on ethics in K through 12 education that use this format of a set of case studies, each followed by commentaries from combination of philosophers, empirical researchers, or social scientists and practitioners. And we found that model really engaging. Jake Fay is another colleague that we met at the philosophy camp that Ashley mentioned, and Mira Levinson was his doctoral advisor at Harvard. And so they together collaborated on these volumes and that we drew inspiration from the model we saw in their work on K through 12 ethics that really expanded on some of the earlier ways or more common ways that I've seen case studies used is maybe presenting a case study and then analyzing it through the lens of a utilitarian ethics or like a, a, using a particular ethical theory to interpret the case rather than having the responses to the case come from a wider array of disciplinary or academic and, and practical perspectives the way yeah. that that we've done with the commentaries in the case. So we took inspiration from them and I brought this idea of having a a similar kind of format for a higher ed ethics volume to them. And they both were really supportive and excited about the idea and we went went from there and have gotten a lot of support from them in the process. Yeah, it's really cool. I I, will be talking more about it through the, the full range of the conversation, but high level, you write a fictionalized 
case based on these topics and themes that are very relevant to the types of ethical decisions and quandaries that are presenting across colleges and universities, generally across the U.S. these days. And then you get in that cross-section you were just referring to, Rebecca, is part of what's really interesting. It's diverse. It's not it's not, everyone is not of the same profile. It's not like you have eight different ethicists debating yeah. ethical positions. Instead, it's people are, are coming at it from different backgrounds, different lived experiences, and then they are bringing those to bear. And then you also intentionally didn't give them too many constraints in terms of how they wanted to respond, which made it more interesting. You really didn't know necessarily what you were going to see next and what people were going to focus on. And it did seem at a higher level, it almost seemed like a case study in the benefit of diverse perspectives to complex topics. Ashley, maybe picking up there, thoughts on that. And then also I'd love to start getting into the topics themselves because you outlined seven different cases, each of which could be its own podcast. This was the part that was most exciting to me. This idea that we were going to be learning from the perspectives of so many different sorts of folks who were interested in these issues, particularly since I came up more on the practitioner side, the administrative side, I was really energized that we were going to be inviting people who were on that side of the house in the university. Um, in addition to some, you know, traditional academics, I was thrilled that we were able to include graduate students as well as more senior, distinguished faculty. I thought that was really important. It, it gave us a diversity of perspectives. I loved that we had some folks in from think tanks. And when we were thinking about the audience for the book, I had in mind that one way I, I thought this could be used in higher ed. So as I was coming up through higher education programs, I noticed that when we were discussing like finance, enrollment management, crisis response and higher education, um, ethics really wasn't a central focus. And so I had a sense that first these cases could be used in the classroom and could be useful to higher ed faculty. But also I noticed that on uh, my campus and many others, senior administrators were coming together and they were having book clubs and they were trying to, you know, try to think through and anticipate what sorts of ethical challenges might arise so that you're, they're not always reacting, but rather they can lead from a place of integrity. So I thought this sort of audience Chances are many of them, if we were to pick a case directly from the, the headlines, the sort of like dicey moment you described, they may actually, senior administrators at one university may actually know someone who was involved with that case at another university. And so we tried to we fictionalize the cases. We wanted to clear a bit of the clutter there away from people's mind and get them to really dive into the cases. And, and then also because this was a volume on ethics, we really wanted to be sensitive to not placing people in the position of sitting around and debating a really stressful, emotional, high stakes situation for other humans. Mm -hmm. You read a story in Inside Higher Ed and it might be really interesting to you, but for that person, yeah. this may be a really significant hardship in their life. And so we don't want people to just sit around and debate other people's lives in that way and fictionalizing the cases allowed us to do that. I would just add the... In approaching developing each of the cases that are fictionalized, as Ashley was describing, we reviewed what's happening in colleges around the country in this area, what's happening legislatively, what's happening on the policy side. And within all these different reports and re reviewing all the information we could find about a particular theme that we wanted to 
bring into one of the case studies. We tried to identify what were the core ethical tensions that we saw arising in the public discourse around that topic. So mm -hmm. I think that gets to how you're, as you're referencing them as being zeitgeisty. We tried to like tap into through our own analysis of what's happening ethically within the public discourse around these topics, identify what are the key ethical tensions and the different topics we we're interested in, and then build those into the fictionalized narrative case studies. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, uh, they're fictionalized, but they're also in addition to the podcast, you could probably produce the next season of the, the chair on Netflix based on some <laughs> of these topics. So Rebecca, can you introduce one of these cases? And then I think we can go through a little bit of a ping pong exercise here while you'll introduce the case and maybe we get Ashley's reaction and, and back and forth. For sure. The first case in the volume focuses on some ethical questions regarding intellectual diversity on campus. And it, we approach that topic through a narrative that asks how a president's diversity council at a public university, this is a university situated in the Southwest US, and we're asking how they should respond to some community and student protests that have occurred on the campus in response to a political speaker who's known for drafting anti-immigration legislation. So the case brings in kind of this element of a controversial campus speaker. There's also pressure from the legislature and the state to ward against liberal indoctrination on campus. There are these different elements of tension around what kind of views are, are represented on campus and brought into academic discourse in the college community. And then they're centered around this controversial speaker and the response of students and community members to that speaker event. And so then in the case, we ask the kind of central actors in the case are this diversity council at the university who've been tasked with deciding how to respond mm -hmm. to the demands of student activists that the university makes some changes in the wake of this event. That this is read off the news or the interweb, wherever we get our information these days, the almost platonic case of the type <laughs> of story that people like to bring up when it comes to, to higher ed, a lot of issues around diversity and inclusion, but also free speech. So it is something that I, I think immediately brings the reader in. And it's also a place where I came away empathizing better with what it must be like to be in a leadership position in higher ed now. And also I would think if it was earlier in my career and I was curious about pursuing that career path, it, it, it's good to know that there is hard ethical work to be done. It's not uncomplicated. It's actually complex. And then actually the diversity of perspectives, maybe you could pick up on the range of responses that you found to this particular case. And then we could probably do a couple more. The name of the book is Ethics in Higher Education, Promoting Equity and Inclusion Through Case-Based Inquiry. We'll be sharing information about it on the, the show page for, for the episode. But if you're intrigued by this, definitely check it out. But Ashley, your take about the topic, but also what you were able to demonstrate by sharing the diverse perspectives on this particular issue. Yes, this topic, you're right, it comes straight from the news. It is something that's really accessible to people. In fact, Rebecca and I had written together and presented some on the case of Middlebury College. You may recall they had the protests in response to Charles Murray mm -hmm. um, and his visit there. And there have been a number of events like this that you can point to. And I think, honestly, the themes that we see in this chapter, Rebecca and I have been discussing recently, they have a lot of 
salience with the conversations we're seeing right now about anti-critical race theory legislation and its impact on post-secondary education. One of the ways in which these things are similar is there is this sense of legislative pressure. And I think that's something that is maybe a little less understood outside of um, the senior administration of a public university, the sense to which you are in some way beholden to your state legislature. And there's a delicate dance between legislators who will be subject to being voted out and others voted in. So the legislature will change over time. And you may have the same leaders in a university throughout multiple legislative changes. Balancing those complex pressures, I think it's, it is very challenging. And then of course, it's certainly challenging for younger faculty, for adjunct faculty without tenure protection. I mean, a lot of these things, we see them uh, playing out again and again in higher education. You know, one of the, uh, responses that we had to this case was um, actually from colleagues of mine at Florida International University. One, Laura Deinhardt is a dean of the College of Education, and Heather Russell is the vice provost for faculty leadership and success. And so they wrote about courageous leadership from the middle, mm. and they were really calling attention to how do you adhere to the requirements from your system, universities, public universities tend to function as systems. So mm -hmm. it's not just your students and faculty may want you to respond one way. Consistent with your campus's history, your campus's ethos and identity. And yet you may have very real constraints on what you can do because of your system or the state in which you operate. So they talked about some courageous steps that leaders can, can take that are very creative that attempt to lead from the middle where it seems like you, you actually can't. And so they really, I think, helped us envision what that could look like. And so I, I was really encouraged by the responses to this case. I felt like they, they did help us not only identify what goes wrong in situations like these, but also what could go right. And certainly with as many cases as we have seen in response to controversial speakers, and now we're seeing with critical race theory, this would be a chapter would make sense to spend some time on. Well, that's what I was saying. I, I think a lot of this stuff does have uh, relevance. And then I think the fact that you're reading other people's relatively short responses, which is the other thing that I like about it. It's very bite-sized and digestible in smaller hits. If you don't have a lot of time to really sit there, like you can get through a case relatively quickly. And then when you're reading the reactions, I, I think it's a good modeling exercise then for, for the reader as well, where it does force you to think about how might I react or what might I pick up on in this case that is personally relevant for me. And then there is the higher level point that you realize, ah, when you think about a complex system like this, all the different stakeholders might be seeing this in really varied and different ways. And that's actually good. Like if it was simple, cut and dry, get a check mark and move on to the next case, you wouldn't really be grappling with the type of thinking and the type of development that's necessary to get good at this stuff. And then I also imagine you need the reps too, like, and you're not going to get the reps until you're actually in the real world. So that's where a lot of the research I've done into learning through simulations and scenario-based exercises is even if you don't get that exact case, you know, these are all fictionalized, going through the exercise of what might happen broadens your mind and increases your readiness so that when the next thing comes up, 
you're a little bit primed. But coming back to maybe another case or two, is there another one that jumps out to you, Ashley? And then I'd love to get uh, Rebecca's response. So one case in the volume is on faculty activism on social media and implications for professional advancement. And this case went through a variety of iterations. There three authors in the case. And the first person to work on this case was our friend Jake Fay. And he noted all of these examples in the news about faculty who had run afoul of their administrators by saying things on social media that the administration did not approve of, did not want to be associated with. And in some cases, these things were relevant to their standard academic freedom protections. And in others, the line was a little bit blurry because we all know how social media is. One minute you're sharing a photo of your dog and your toddler, and the next minute you're sharing something about politics. And right after that, it's your professional life. So Jake noticed this kind of bubbling up. And as we continued to work on the case, I actually co-authored this in part of Jake and with my husband, who's a department chair. And we started thinking about the pressures that faculty feel to post on social media to bring better attention to the university, to promote their work, to push out their books, to push out podcasts they're on. And so in some ways the university is encouraging this, but then in other ways, how, how challenging might this be? And so we imagined a scenario in which a, a black a female faculty member began using Twitter as a platform to really promote greater equity within STEM fields, within her own discipline. And what happens when the pylon occurs and somebody responds to a tweet and then it gets retweeted and how that can escalate. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to think through how colleagues might perceive and respond to that sort of scenario, how a tenure promotion committee might respond, and then how the individual at the heart of all of this might understand their own positionality. And so... That's how we we got interested and excited about this idea of faculty activism on social media. And I think, again, this is one of those things. It's not going to stop. We're only going to see more evidence. Universities and faculty members disagree about how social media is best used. Yeah. And this is also a call out, which I didn't even know was a thing uh, until I was reading some of the response. But to basically catch someone doing something they shouldn't and call attention to that and uh, Interestingly, there is pressure, I think, to be a watchdog, particularly for minoritized groups who are not traditionally given the airtime, which adds even more complexity to the case. The cases really are quite engaging in that way. Rebecca, any thoughts uh, on this particular case or, or the responses? In my reading of this chapter and the commentaries that we got from our colleagues in response to this case study, what I found really interesting was how the commentators who are each coming from a different, as we talked about before, a different disciplinary perspective, different personal and professional histories. And in this, the responses to this case, they highlighted different dimensions of ethical issues in the case, but all came out and on this uh, with some kind of co common or agreement around the idea that it would be wrong to deny tenure to this professor on the grounds of her social media usage. So there was this interesting commonality that came out, but they each got there through different kind of lines of reasoning and from different starting points that stood out to me. But then also just in the responses, I think 
Some of the commentators focused on thinking about what norms should guide faculty use of social media. We need some kind of ethical norms to guide our use. And there's this lack there and what should those be? Whereas others focused on framing social media activism as a form of service to the university or to the academy that minoritized faculty members are offering as a service to help the academy become better mm. by kind of framing it in that way. And then we have one commentator, Jennifer Miguans, who really focused on the ethics of refusing the university and refusing that pressure to engage in social media as part of your professional role mm. within the institution. Mm -hmm. And kind of she approached it from a different lens, drawing on um, indigenous philosophies and what would it look like to refuse the academy and just opt out of participating in that realm. Yeah. Completely. So yeah. but across all of those different approaches to the case, they had common themes that emerged, which I found really interesting, just thinking about how you can draw on these different philosophical, practical, social scientific resources, come to some common understanding of at least some elements of the case. I was going to say, I've already used this chapter in my own teaching and in how I would respond to students. So an example of how this became really relevant to me was one of the commentators, TJ Stewart, talks about how in this case and in other cases like it, white supremacy can work to distract your attention from where it really needs to be, like where the core ethical tension lives. Mm. And so I was teaching a course last summer on diversity and social justice in higher education. And that's right about the time that the news hit about Nicole Hannah-Jones being denied tenure at UNC. And immediately conversations on the discussion board shifted to, well, uh, some historians disagree with her work. They think her work isn't valid, blah, blah, blah. And I noticed, and I remembered what TJ said and I thought, oh, but we're getting distracted from the core issue here, which is a board of trustees is overturning the decision recommended by faculty, recommended by the provost, recommended by the president. So we are distracting ourselves from the standard that is being applied to her that is not being applied to other candidates for tenure. And so it was a really helpful moment for me not to even have to go back and use the case, but just to remember TJ's way of thinking about this issue. Yep. And I could almost hear his thoughts in my head and, and it shaped how I thought about a completely different scenario and how I responded to my students. And they actually found that to be a very helpful framework in responding to what they were reading in the news because they were all very interested in the case, but just hadn't really thought about it in that way. Yeah, that, that kind of was my point earlier, just around like you almost need to get the reps in or, or start to practice shifting into a different kind of mindset. And that's also why I do think the fictionalizing of the cases helps. Otherwise, if you're pulled too much into reality, particularly something about Twitter, before you know it, you're probably firing off some tweets if you're already on there when you should be like, no, wait a second, I'm supposed to be learning about ethics and thinking about this stuff. This stuff is pretty fascinating in some surprising ways. One more time, it's ethics in higher education, promoting equity and inclusion through case-based inquiry. We're getting towards our concluding time here. It's always where I, I like to get folks' perspectives, what's capturing their imagination these days. But very much appreciate getting each of you on for this conversation. Let's begin with you, Ashley, and then conclude with you, Rebecca. Any other 
cases or thoughts or things that are happening out in the world that are jumping up to mind? This isn't necessarily, I don't know if we can call it a trend, but, but one of the cases that I do want to call attention to is the case concerning HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if you pay attention in Inside the Higher Ed, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, we are seeing a lot of news stories about HBCUs with Vice President Harris being elected and being a graduate of an HBCU. There's been renewed kind of attention within the news. And we really benefited from chatting. The authors of that case are one, John Tory. We met at Philosophy Camp. <laughs> and I know it seems like we've met everyone. It's like band camp. It's Philosophy. good. It's good. Yeah. But they did such a great job of pulling together a really fascinating case about a presidential choice. Um, and HBCUs. And I wish that you could have been there for the live conversation. We had a Zoom meeting with all the commentators. And I have to say, it's one of the most enjoyable academic conversations that you know, I've ever been a part of. I loved hearing their perspectives. They were all graduates of HBCUs or connected to HBCUs. And I just think that it's something to watch in higher education is the next generation opportunities for HBCUs. And I, I was just really excited and interested in that case. It was not something that is in my area, but it was something that I got really intrigued by in, in reading John and Corey's case. Yeah, definitely. It's, I, I felt similarly where I wasn't as close to that dimension of ethical considerations and what it's like. You know, I've talked more in the abstract around some of the financial challenges that small private liberal arts colleges may face. I keep coming back to new media formats. So it's a podcast, it's a, a screenplay. And now that we just live stream some of these conversations, it's a whole media empire that we're sitting on here. But uh, Rebecca, any concluding thoughts, perspectives as we're wrapping up? One thing that st stands out for me that I've been paying attention to during the pandemic is how students are raising their voices in new ways and calling on their institutions to do more to live up to their values around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think you mentioned earlier, like a lot of lip service to those values, but it doesn't always go deep enough. And I think students are one of the biggest voices calling on colleges and universities to do more to live up to those values. And traditionally that's been through on the ground activism on campuses, hosting rallies or marches, doing sit-ins in your administrative offices. And with the pandemic, we've seen a decline in those forms of activism, but we've also seen students finding new ways to engage in activism in those areas. And so I find that to be a really interesting area to watch. And it's something I try to pay attention to and see what is it that students are, are raising, because I think we have a lot to, to learn as faculty members, as professionals in the higher education space from the, the concerns that students are bringing forward. Yeah. And, and just building on that point, it does remind me of the importance of empathy in all directions. You know, Ashley, you mentioned you had graduate students as commentators, even just talking through and sharing the challenges on the administrative side with an undergraduate, just so that they can understand a little better, reminds me a bit of the conflict resolution work that I've seen. You know, the more you have to assume the perspective of someone who's in a different position, suddenly things get much more complicated and it becomes harder to villainize the other side and it becomes a little easier to start to broaden your your perspective broaden your understanding we could go into much more the stories uh, the narratives are all quite intriguing i would recommend the book to our our listeners ashley floyd kuntz and rebecca taylor thank you very much for joining us i really got a lot out of this conversation 
Thanks for having us, Mike. Thanks so much. Awesome. And for our listeners, hopefully you're intrigued. Your wheels are turning. You're flexing ethical muscles that you need to keep working. And you're enjoying the show. If you enjoy what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe, spread the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.